real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns, and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. So welcome back, everybody. Nathan Rome is with you. Today, we're going to talk about some of the uh, preparation for being a first responder and subsequent psychological challenges of the work. And for this, I have Mark Bouchard on the show. Mark was born and raised in Delta, British Columbia, Canada. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in political science and economics from UBC and has since obtained his Master of Arts in Leadership from Royal Roads University with a focus on police culture and police officer mental health. In 2007, Mark was hired as a police officer with the Delta Police Department and worked primarily in patrol with the emergency response team, which is a SWAT, a Canadian version of SWAT, you can call it, I guess. In 2014, Mark became a tactical medic with an equivalent level of advanced care scope of practice. And he is also a peer support officer and mental health facilitator. In 2020, Mark transferred to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, where he continues his work with the emergency response team in general duty and highway patrol. Uh, he is a husband and father and has a book coming out soon, which we'll also get into. He's a very busy guy. But uh, welcome, Mark. Thanks for taking the time today to come on the show. Awesome. Thanks a lot for having me on, Nathan. I love the show. Uh, you know, we'll start where we kind of start with most people the first time they're on. Uh, and that's just talking about you. So can you tell us where you come from and uh, what growing up was like? Sure. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Delta, British Columbia, a uh, suburban neighborhood of Vancouver. And I had a uh, really really good childhood. I had, I come from a decently large family. I, um, yeah, I have, uh, four siblings, one adopted brother, three biological siblings, and uh, my parents are still together. They still live in the same house that I grew up in. And, um, yeah, it was a great childhood. Hockey was actually my big thing growing up. I wanted nothing more than to be a hockey player, played a lot of junior hockey, a little bit of, uh, college with UBC uh, just a few games there and then played one year overseas. And then that really transitioned for me into uh, moving into policing. And it's, I've really found my, you know, a new passion with police work and, and the good that comes from it. And much like hockey, you get the bond and the brotherhood of the people you're, you're with. And some of my best friends are still people I, uh, people I played hockey with growing up that you go through really intense things together. And it's the same thing for policing. I, you know, met some new best friends for life. I could tell within a couple months you have new best friends for life. Yeah, and it's uh, been super rewarding for me. Well, what uh, what drew you to law enforcement in the first place? I think it's a combination of a few things. I saw like my parents had a business; they still do. My dad's seventy five, and he still works as an accountant as much as he ever has, and oh, wow. loves what he does. Uh, but I watched people breaking into his business countless times, stealing cars from the parking lot. Like mm. you just saw the crime. You know, one day. Somebody drove a truck through the front of his business to steal two flat screen monitors. Oh, like you're talking tens of thousands of dollars of damage and they didn't even really like get much of value. It's, a, it's just it's so dumb. Yeah. And if those people applied their same, um, their same efforts to actual like positive contributions to society, like they could do so much more. Yeah. Um, I also saw 
I'm sorry, there's a bit of barking in the background here. Can you hear that? Nope. You're good. <laughs> no? Okay, perfect. I've got five dogs here, a couple of police dogs, a couple of kids, so it can get a little loud. <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyways, I, I, uh, essentially that was a bit of transition. Hockey was my focus and then it kind of turned into policing. I also had a, a friend, I was coaching a bunch of hockey at the time. And, uh, one of my friends went on some ride-alongs with the inspector in charge of the emergency response team for Vancouver at the time. And, uh, he would come in raving about just how, what great experiences he had. Mm. And it kind of got me to start thinking of what to do and led me down a road to volunteering with the police as a reserve. And that went really well. And, uh, then every, every step you forward, you just find like really good people doing really meaningful things and the chance, you know, I say what a lot of people have said when I sat in on recruiting interviews, I want to help people. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times there can be a lack of understanding of how we actually help people, you know, within society that part of our job is to keep people safe, but sometimes that means using force as well. And I think there can be a real lack of understanding from the public that causes tension in the you know, police public relations. Yeah. Well, and was there any uh, thought to going pro in hockey? Was that a part of your dreams or no? Oh, it was. <laughs> If only I was good enough. Um, okay. <laughs> well, technically, one of the year I played in Europe, I played in the Danish Elite League, which is essentially a pro league. Mm-hmm. Uh, like every team would have guys who played in the NHL. Um, we had one, but some of the teams would have multiple. Um, but uh, it, it wasn't meant for me. To be honest, being away from home, like you're you know, almost, what, nine, ten hours time difference from everyone. Yeah. You really realize what you miss with your family. I've Some of my buddies I played with played a lot of years of minor pro where you know, you don't make much money. You make 30 grand a year and you get a construction job in the summer and you destroy your body, like all the <laughs> yeah. hitting, fighting. And like, I played a pretty rough style of hockey. Um, so no, it, it just wasn't really in the cards for me. Yeah. Well, yeah. Policing, you would hope has less uh, hits to the head, but there's still lots of uh, G forces on the body and different things when you drive in and some of the stuff you get into, I imagine, especially with uh, being with ERT, you probably subject yourself to a lot of things in training so that the regular person wouldn't go through. Um, did you have any family or anyone that uh, kind of led you in this direction at all or no? I didn't. I have a cousin who got into the RCMP actually after I did. Um, but no, no family connection. I come from a family of accountants. <laughs> My dad's like a 50 plus year, you know, CA, CPA. My brother's got a CPA and CFA, so certified financial analyst yeah. as well. My sister is a CA, or no, I guess they're basically all CPAs. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I basically come from a family of accountants and somehow kind of wandered my way into this and uh, I'm really grateful I did. It's, it's been really positive for me. It, my job brings me a lot of like meaning and purpose in my life and connection with other people. And I really do feel like I get to help people. I feel mm-hmm. good about you know the investigations I do. I feel good about taking the time to do things well and have like meaningful interactions with the public, even something as simple as like a traffic stop. You know, I, I try to be fair with people and reasonable, mm-hmm. you know, I'll often say, Hey, how long do you need to get this headlight fixed, windshield fixed, whatever it is? Oh, can I have 30 days? Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Right. And just, you, you kind of, you make, so someone like, even if I give someone a ticket, my goal is that they thank me at the end of the interaction. And actually a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And it's because you just treat them with some fairness and respect you can still do your job and you can still explain, Hey, you know, our mission is to reduce state fatal collisions. And, and, you know, I have to enforce speeding and cell phones and seatbelts and all these things. And here's why I'm doing it. 
I've even arrested drunk drivers and like they thank you at the end. Yeah. But it's because you took the time to actually listen to their story and like, yeah, they're, they're drunk all the time because they're an alcoholic because there's a death in the family. And like, mm-hmm. so you, you try and create like more of a long-term solution instead of just like a lot of what we're dealing with are societal problems. And I don't think we can truly in a way police our way out of it. Yeah. It doesn't mean we don't need to do police enforcement. I think it is crucial to stop that drunk driver because they're going to kill someone. But you know, that's just not the only answer. There is bigger picture issues at play. Um, well, one thing I want to uh, get into as well is your education. So some of this uh, might lead into the policing and how you, how you police. Uh, but you had, was it your master of arts? You also had a BA in political science and government. Um, what kind of led you down that path? And at what time were you doing your education in, in relation to when you actually got into policing? Yeah. So I took a year off after high school. I worked a job I did not like. Uh, I worked at Staples as a shipper receiver mm. and uh, realized that maybe I should go to school and, and try and work a little more with my mind. Uh, I've always been into politics. I find it fascinating and really important. So I, I actually almost went into um, doing an economics major. But because I took a year off, I watched a lot of my friends fail calculus. <laughs> and then I found a way to do a minor in, without doing calculus. Yeah. And I got to explore political science, which I really enjoyed the topic. But in a way, it's not like super relevant. Like you, you know, I got a job after university. I made the same amount of money I made before starting university. Yeah. And I used to joke, I just like my job less. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you went from doing some physical with your buddies to like, sitting in a cubicle and not really liking your job. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it does help you. You know, it helps to make you more articulate and more well-rounded and learn more about the world. Um, you know, maybe understand people in a different way. So I think in the, in, at the end of the day, it was good for me, uh, but then I was ready for a break. Mm. And uh, leading into my master's was actually partly because I spent six years on the emergency response team. But most of the time when I've watched people leave the emergency response team, I've watched friends basically go through a depression because you have this thing that brings you such meaning and purpose. You get to go do incredible things with your best friends every day. And you feel such a sense of purpose every day you wake up. Like I need to get a little better today because like I listened to Kevin Sear on your, your podcast the other day Mm -hmm. and he mentioned just their team, just the suburbs of lower of Vancouver, lower mainland gets five hostage takings a year. Yeah. Like I was on that team for six years. So how many hostage calls did you get? Right, it, it it brings you an intense sense of meaning and purpose. Yeah, because we talk about it. How would you want that to be, them to be treated if it was your family? Yeah, we do everything we can to save them, and that's what we should be doing for the other hostages out there. But the public often doesn't know about that side. Yeah, so that, that's where the meaning really comes in. Like you wake up excited to go to work, and then you get there, and you know you get to hang out with these awesome people, and you go through such intense things together that really forms these incredible friendships. Like I have so many best friends for life just from going through intense things with them. Well, that's one thing that I was, uh, I've said many times on this show is I think that's missing from this job nowadays and they don't instill it as much in the uh, recruit training aspect of it. And I don't know if there's anything they really do that I can think of to really foster that outside of work as well. Like there's uh, certain events and stuff, but the camaraderie aspect, um, that is a massive, massive component, especially when you're working in small teams, like a squad, you've got, you know, depending where you work, I mean, a squad could be five or six people to like 15, but um, that really becomes a family when you're spending eight, 
10 or 12 hour shifts with them four or five days a week. Uh, you see some of these people more than your family in some people's cases. So yeah, that's a huge component to it. And I could see what you're saying. Like when you, even without leaving the job as a police officer, um, just transferring from, you know, ERT or even a patrol squad to something that's like maybe in the uh, back office type job, HR, you can be a police officer there, but it is not the same. You're not going to the same type of events. You don't have the same uh, reliability on other people. And even just the camaraderie that's there, some of the dark humor that's there, all those things just kind of disappear to an extent. So yeah, it can be depressing to an extent, right? Yeah. Well, like I look at it, I think I've trained five recruits as a primary trainer and Mm -hmm. a bunch as a secondary. And a couple of my recruits are still a couple of my best friends because you go through such intense things together. I was about maybe two or three months into my start on the earth team. And I read this book called uh, The Like Switch. And they talk about something. It's a term they use called the, um, the friendship formula. And he describes the four things that creates friendships. Proximity, frequency, intensity, and duration. And I just had such a light bulb moment when I read that. Mm-hmm. And it's intensity. Because like even a patrol squad, you go to all kinds of crazy things together. You're the first responders. And then these people have your back. They look out for you. Like they put themselves in danger to help keep you safe. Uh, and you go through hardship together. Even if it's not physical danger, sometimes it's emotional pain. It's giving someone a hug after an ex of kin notification. Like I've been there where someone's crying because that's really hard. Mm-hmm. And we don't really often talk about those sides. But that forms those lifelong friendships. And I didn't understand. I had these new best friends for life until reading that book. And it just was such a an eye-opening moment. And to me, the people in policing is the best part. Yeah. Like, just it's amazing people who really want to give and help in their community and i think at times the public really doesn't understand that or see that they might only get you know some a grumpy cop at 2 a.m giving them a ticket and they don't understand that like he's grumpy because he just had to tell someone their loved one was dead Mm -hmm. like and that's really hurting emotionally and maybe he's feeling it so that's part of why i started speaking about this one part was to help educate cops but a second part was to change a bit of their perception like within uh, within regular society around policing culture. Okay. So I think society still doesn't really understand it. Well, um, and I mean, you, you've worked for two different services. So you've worked for Delta Police. So you started there in 2007, and then you switched to the RCMP in 2020. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, maybe the differences between the two? And then or uh, also an add in, like why the change? So 13 years in, what kind of, led you to change services? Yeah, okay. Um, well, there's a couple different parts. So first off, my wife is a dog handler with the RCMP. Mm. She actually was a Delta cop as well. She transferred out of Delta about two months after I got there. So we barely met, didn't really know each other. Oh, wow. And then we met, started dating, and she'd already taken a transfer to a town called Williams Lake in British Columbia, about six hours north of Vancouver. And then we did a bit of like long-distance commuting, and I had a really good spot on the lower mainland emergency response team. So I commuted for probably two or three years and stayed with Delta police. So 2017 to 2020, I timed out and had to go back to patrol. Actually it was September, 2019. I had to go Mm. back to patrol in Delta and I probably was never going to get a chance to go back to earth at that point, nor to be a medic anymore. And obviously I'd spent a lot of time and effort to get to those things. 
Um, I, we had been debating having me apply and moving full time to Williams Lake because we have kids now and like you only see your kids two or three days out of the week. Like, yeah, it's just not how I want to spend my time and it's not how I want to live. Uh, so that was one part. Um, we debated whether to move back to the lower mainland as a family. Uh, then actually Portapic happened and that's right when I applied was that's my only time, my only chance to get back to being able to help with those kind of situations. And here I've spent 10 years trying to get good as a inert operator and as a medic. Um, and it's knowing that, okay, well, you've got to switch forces. And I love some other aspects like the RCMP is a giant family, mm-hmm. right? At the end of the day, we might argue at times or disagree on things, but you're part of a giant uh, police family and the organization's not perfect. It still has its challenges, but there's a lot of good there. And there's a, there is a lot to be proud of. So yes, in a way, we do need to recognize the mistakes we've made in the past and own them and, and do better. But I also think there's so much good and honor in the organization that we can be proud of as well. And those two things don't need to be like mutually exclusive. Well, and you, uh, it's interesting you're helping people in all these ways now, but you were also a medic before. So it's kind of always been in your nature is you're always been the medic, whether it's physical stuff or mental stuff. Yeah. I started as a medic in 2014 with LMD. Uh, and I knew nothing about it. Like they have different specialty profiles mm-hmm. and the team comes to you and says, Oh, Hey, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a breacher. And they're like, well, our team has five breachers, so we don't need you to be a breacher. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, what else would you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. How about a sniper? And they're like, do you like, uh, you know, hunting and shooting guns and camping and being in the woods? I'm like, no, I don't like any of that. <laughs> like, you're probably not meant to be a sniper. Yeah. And no one wanted to be a medic. So they're like, hey, do you want to go get poked with needles by your buddies? Uh, I'm like, uh, okay, that's what the team needs. And uh, it's been great for me. I've learned a ton, made some awesome connections. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, and the opportunities you have, it's just incredible because we're going to need it. And at times we do need it, right? At times we're, we're using those skills to try and save people. And that's, you know, super important. I came to a realization, having gone through my own hardship, sometimes you're just really honest and just, just real about it. You know, you're sitting in the car riding with somebody and you just get real about life and what you've been through. And almost every time you'd hear the same thing back of what, hardships they'd been through and how it was impacting them. Um, and it made me realize, I, I thought being a good medic was going to save one of my best friends one day and I treated it that way. Mm-hmm. And then I realized the mental health side of the job is actually even more likely to save. Yeah. Like we look at the statistics of policing throughout numerous decades, you know, the, the most likely person to kill a police officer has been themselves. Mm-hmm. That's been for a long period of time, but it's really, um, something we failed to address adequately. So that's where my passion, and as I started to share a little bit of my experience and what I'd learned and, you know, learned the hard way and spent too long suffering, what I expected was like shame and judgment. And what I got back was generally like connection and understanding. Yeah. And it, it took my own like suffering and, and the bad things I went through and gave it meaning and purpose. And then I just started seeing how badly it was needed in all these little informal one-on-one talks and as a, a mental health facilitator for the Road to Mental Readiness program and then as a peer support member. Um, and I don't feel any shame about my experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I've talked pretty openly about them. Um, you know, I wrote a chapter for my book about emotional pain. And after that, I literally was done. And I took a call of like a child sex assault. And at the end of the day, I kept it together. I did my job. I stayed professional. I did the, the interview. And I went in to refer them to our victim services office. 
And we had this awesome woman who worked there named Cheryl. And as I turned around after I was done to walk away, she said, Mark, that was a terrible call. What are you going to do to take care of you? And I broke down and started crying in her office. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel any shame about that. That's me as a person. That's my humanity. Like we are meant to have empathy. We're meant to have connection with people and we feel some of their feelings. Yeah. And I've seen it in relation to next of kin notifications. The, the first call that really bothered me was a next of kin at well, a fatal car crash of uh, two young girls. And I had to go and tell their family, well, one of them, their family that she had died and it devastated me. I couldn't talk about it for years. If I even thought about it, I would break down crying mm. um, because I carried such a pain about it. Like I carried a piece of their pain. And I used to say, what's wrong with me? Like I thought something was wrong with me for feeling that way. And now having watched other recruits do their first NOK and talked with so many people about it, nothing was wrong with me. Mm-hmm. The only thing wrong with me was my mental model that I was supposed to be this robocop, that I could go see extreme sadness and then just take my police hat off and pretend nothing had happened. Because I remember that day after my night shift, I went home, I ended up sitting down to have breakfast with my girlfriend and my parents. And I couldn't speak. Mm. Like I knew if I said a word, I would just break down crying. I just sat there in silence as they all had this conversation around me and had no idea. And that trauma continued to affect me for five or 10 years before I finally found some like better coping strategies and stopped judging myself for feeling that way. Did you find, um, so when you're sitting there, uh, do you find that it's just your mind can't uh, think about something else? Is you, are you constantly thinking about uh, the events or how you're dealing with something? Or is it is it like a combination of everything? Can it be a whole bunch of things? Yeah, from having talked with a lot of different officers, I think we all have variations, different experiences around these things because how they impact us won't be the same. Mm-hmm. Someone might end up with like a diagnosis of depression. Someone might end up with anxiety. Someone might end up with a PTSD diagnosis and the symptoms and how they'll manifest. And someone might have nothing. It's okay to be okay. Um, for me, it, it wasn't like I constantly thought about it at all. It was more when I did, like if I drove past the location of the crash, mm-hmm. then you're reminded of it. Then you start to become overwhelmed by the emotion. And I would say what I had done was just bury those emotions into my emotional backpack and I carried them around forever. Mm-hmm. So yes, I could often just function normally and not think about it and it wouldn't impact me all the time. But what I had to do was when I got too much in the backpack, it all starts boiling over and then I had to learn healthy coping strategies. Okay. But in my opinion, policing culture has historically taught what I would describe as maladaptive coping strategies. Right? What's the primary strategy for coping been? Go get drunk. Mm. Go drink some alcohol. And that's probably one of the worst strategies you could design. Yeah. So it might make you, it, it does, it makes you feel a little better in the moment. It probably brings you a little bit of stress relief. But it's terrible for your brain. It messes with your sleep. Like there's severely detrimental impacts. You know, even things like, you know, alcohol abuse combined with PTSD, your suicide risk goes up dramatically. Like, mm-hmm. you know, arguably about 10 times. So we have a, a profession where that's a problem in our profession and our answer is go get drunk. Yeah. And that's what, I, like, I actually had this one day where I was in my kitchen and I actually yelled out loud to no one, just myself, just yelling at my wall, why the fuck don't they teach us this? Yeah. Like, why did I suffer for 10 years trying to get drunk and drink away my feelings 
when there's such there is healthy coping strategies and there are better ways that we can totally normalize and reduce the stigma and educate people about. And I was not able to change it within my organizations. Mm. So I just decided I'm just gonna start sharing it on my own. Like I don't need someone's permission. I can just talk about it on a podcast or write a book. And essentially my goal was to write what I needed and share the stories and the experiences I went through and then all the science I learned that helped me. Because like I wish someone had done that for me before. And personally, a book like Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement by Mm -hmm. Dr. Kevin Gilmartin was so important to me. I still reread that book and it has uh, significantly benefited me and and made my life better. But what I hope to write was about different challenges. Because he talks about some awesome things that are super important. I think they give that one out at Depot where they recommend it to families when I went through. There were two books. Like when you have that family day yeah, and they bring them in and say like, hey, this is what your spouses are going to go through. I want to say they recommended that one and something like How to Love a Cop, if it's called that. I, mean, I, I Love a Cop? I Love a Cop, yeah. Is it a blue book? Ellen Kirschman? Oof, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> yeah, it is probably I Love a Cop. It's another yeah. great book. Yeah. Um, she's another awesome police psychologist, just, just like Dr. Gil Martin. And I mean, back in the day, I used to give emotional survival to every recruit I ever had. Mm-hmm. And then the department eventually started doing it. And that wasn't at my urging that they started because it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Every cop should get that book, but it also should be integrated into our training. It shouldn't just be, here's a book. I hope you read it. This should be part of what you get trained on is, you know, some of his concepts are like the magic chair, the emotional roller coaster, kind of like, uh, you know, a victim mindset where mm-hmm. you have no control, where the policing takes over your identity. Like I am a cop and I've watched enough people get hired as cops and you see some of that happening. You see like the cynicism creep in because you get lied to all the time as a cop. Mm -hmm. And if like I, my understanding is our default as people is essentially to believe people because it's just too hard to function within a society where we question everything and always think we're being lied to. Yeah. But now you go into police work and you get lied to all the time. Mm -hmm. Everyone, not everyone. A lot of times people are trying to lie to you. And if you just naturally believe them, you're not going to be a very good cop. Mm-hmm. That's one part of the cynicism. The second part is actually the cynicism towards the job. Because what does everyone say when they want to get hired? I want to help people. Mm-hmm. I've probably sat in on, I don't know, 10 or 15 recruiting interviews. Every single person, why do you want to be a cop? I want to help people. Okay, but then you go do the job and you often don't feel like you're actually helping anyone. Yeah. Because you go back to the same calls at the same houses with the same people dealing with the same problems. Right? You go arrest someone for breaching their no alcohol condition again because they're an alcoholic and the courts don't keep them in jail and then they go and re-victimize someone else in the community Mm -hmm. and it's this vicious cycle of like frustration and and honestly sometimes powerlessness where you're directed to do certain things but it's not really what you think is the most valuable use of your time so i think it would be better if we taught people about that ahead of time so that they can actually counteract it because if you take that cynicism and now you go home and you think your spouse and your kids are lying to you all the time, and you treat them like they are, that's probably a recipe for some serious disconnection at home and a very unhealthy family dynamic. So, you know, at first, it's the challenge is turning it on at work and learning how to be switched on and be mm-hmm. alert and know that people are going to lie to you. But then I think the harder part becomes turning it off when you leave and letting yourself not be a cop anymore and just be a dad or a mom or husband or whatever those other things are. And again, that's some of the good that Dr. Gil Martin talks about in emotional survival. Do you think that um, 
maybe people don't make the connection. So if you have a police officer and they're not making the connection between uh, experiencing a traumatic event or just, I don't know the definition of traumatic even, but like just something that's going to bother them and then the coping side of things. So if I go to a car crash and pieces of people are everywhere and then at the end of shifts, I just go drinking and maybe that makes you feel a certain way, but maybe you're not thinking, well, I'm doing this because of that earlier event. Does that make sense, that question? There's like a a disconnect in there? Yeah. So I think maybe what you're saying is like people aren't understanding their experience nor recognizing their their arguably maladaptive coping mechanism. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. or, Or how they're doing it. Like maybe they're just, they're not thinking I'm drinking because of what I saw earlier. They're not connecting the two. I would say that's probably common. Yeah. Is that it just like, you know, people just start down that road and they don't really see it happening, nor do mm-hmm. they really realize as it, it's like a slow progression. And you like, I'm pretty much a non-drinker. I'll have a few social drinks. Um, but I hit a point where I was having about 50 drinks in a week. Like mm-hmm. I would go buy multiple 26 ounces of rum and finish them in the same week. Oh. Like, so that what you've just described, yeah. that's what I was doing. And mm-hmm. you you feel a little bit better in that moment. Like it, I think soothes some of your pain. And for me, actually, my drinking would usually be at night because I felt a tremendous sense of anxiety about sleep. Mm. And I felt that because I had traumatic nightmares. Right? I had nightmares about calls and events I had been to. Uh, and then I would wake up and I would think that I was remembering the event. But what you're actually doing is reliving those same feelings that you experienced the first time. But what I didn't understand, and I had no idea about sleep science, is that alcohol messes with your sleep. It messes with your REM sleep. Mm, yeah. And my psychologist described it to me at one point where he's like, yeah, it's kind of like taking a gate of all those bad dreams and bad thoughts and like opening the gate. Yeah. And you're like, what? Why, why didn't anyone tell me this? Like, why, why do so many of us just kind of suffer alone feeling this shame and stigma about our experiences without realizing, oh, so many of us have been through similar things. And that connection and understanding is actually so powerful. Like the top uh, expert I have found on trauma is Bessel van der Kolk. And he writes a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And he describes that connection is actually our number one protective factor. And for me, I actually think it's part of why I healed and, and did really well after suffering a psychological injury because I was on this team with all my best friends and they did an amazing job supporting me. Mm-hmm. And I think we can create a healthier culture where we do a better job supporting each other yeah. because sometimes that cynicism creeps into how we treat people when they suffer from a psychological injury. You get, the, oh, they're faking it and must be nice to have the summer off. Mm-hmm. And you get a bunch of this because we're so used to people scamming things and defrauding things and lying that we just naturally start to see the world that way. And I don't think that's what's really happening to people who are suffering from psychological injuries, nor do I think it's nice for them to experience it. Like, it's terrible. Like, I was off work for about two months and it was a terrible experience. I, I hated it. So I think we need to challenge those. And even when we hear them around our workplaces, we need to address it. Mm-hmm. Like, and I have had times when I hear that about someone who's, who's off. And really what they're doing is they are spreading stigma 
about mental health. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting at the watch briefing and someone around your table talks about that idiot who's off and they're just lazy and whatever, and if no one says anything and no one stands up to it, they've just reinforced stigma to everybody there. And what do we tell that new recruit with that message? They say, that's never going to be me. Yeah. No one's ever going to know. I'm never going to ask for help. I'm just going to sit in my basement and get drunk and hope it goes away. And that's why when I hear things like that now, again, I'm not mean about it, but I try and confront it and maybe educate the person a bit um, and change their perspective. Yeah. Well, and would you say um, from your experience or maybe people you've talked to, is there like certain types of events so that, that would create maybe that, uh, that trauma where you know, the event, it does it always have to be a super high risk. We're stopping a hostage taker and, and things are just going crazy. Or like you're saying, you have the next of kin notification and that can be just as, uh, uh, traumatizing or emotional as those other ones and lead to the mental health aspect for the officer. Yeah, that's another great question. Um, it really can be a wide variety. I think in the literature, they call it, what is it, PPTE, potentially psychologically traumatizing event, something like that. And at the end of the day, like you and me could go to the same call and this one really impacted me, but not you. Mm -hmm. And it could be part of that's like personalization with the victim. So maybe my kid is the same age or same gender as this kid. And so I really identify with him or whatever. We're from the same town. So I just see myself in them and that can impact me more. you're right. It can be like the obvious events. So like one of my friends, one of my best friends actually shot a hostage taker at a hostage taking and he got charged with murder, which was an absolute travesty of justice. And it was never about the right thing, like his charges. It was political pressure to charge cops. Again, in my opinion, it's on video. There's no dispute. Mm-hmm. Hostage taker pointed a working gun at the cops. Um, so, but there's ones like that where everyone can see and knows about. But then there's ones where an officer almost shoots someone. And like, for example, that's one of my first ones was I I had someone point an imitation gun at me and I didn't shoot them. And then I suffered from nightmares for many years. Like I suffered from symptoms of PTSD, was diagnosed with PTSD eventually over it um, because of the pain I felt of not like how badly we don't want to use force and how unprepared we are for it. So I was not ready for that and it really impacted me. And it led me down a long road of learning a lot about it, which led me into getting onto an emergency response team uh, and reading a bunch of like Lieutenant Colonel Grossman's books, like on killing, on mm-hmm. combat. There's a book called Shots Fired, which goes into a bunch of experiences from officers after their shootings. Um, but then there's the other side of the job too that we often don't expect, which is like what you just described, the next of kins, the fatal crashes, the, you know, child deaths or anything involving kids. Um, essentially we're hardwired our, our biology for empathy and to connect with people. And when we go and see their extreme suffering, it can really impact us, but we aren't really taught how to handle that. Yeah. And I once heard Dr. Jody Carrington say like, we basically, we carry this emotional pain around in this backpack. And she's like, you don't need to anymore. You can actually come into my office and we can unpack some of it and you can just put it down here on the floor and I don't even have to carry it around. It can just sit there. And it's true, mm-hmm. but no one ever teaches us how to do it. So 
Like I've seen it where, I mean, I described the, the child sex assault call I went to that really bothered me. I've seen it with like next of kins and fatal crashes. Uh, and I've seen it with officers who don't shoot, right? Where they're put into a situation, like the subject or suspect decides the outcome. Mm-hmm. They're coming at you with a knife. You put your finger on the trigger. You start to shoot them. You make a decision to shoot them, that they're going to make me shoot them because they're posing a threat to my life or someone else's life. And then the last second they drop the knife or they stop and you don't shoot them. Mm-hmm. And like this came, this came up with someone at work where I heard about the call and I pulled them aside and just said, Hey, how are you doing? Broke down in tears. Yeah. Right. But a lot of times their boss or their peers have no idea how traumatizing that can be. And then, you know, even for officers who do end up in a shooting, you look at what comes out in the media. Yes. Well, then the media starts roasting them, saying what a murderer they are and all, the, all these other terrible things. And the officer can't say anything, can't defend themselves. You know, at times even begins to question what they did when typically they've done nothing wrong. I'd say almost all the time they've done nothing wrong. They just have a society that doesn't understand. Well, and I think that kind of leaks a little bit into uh, the reasons for why people don't shoot as well. And you'll get officers who uh, hesitate or they just outright don't take a a certain action when they're fully justified. Um, But not taking that action um, either ends up putting them in serious harm or somebody else or could have potentially and just because things happen in, in fractions of a second, um, you don't know, you know, you never know what the outcome is going to be, but you get a lot of people hesitating now because they're thinking in these fractions of a second while somebody's coming at them with a knife or not showing their hands. And, um, and I think that's, that, you know, that's a bigger uh, detriment to members and the public than, um, showing a little bit of support and saying like, Hey, uh, like you kind of said at the beginning, you know, sometimes you got to use violence or force to deal with the very same, the violence or force, I guess. So yeah, now you get people hesitating because they're thinking, Oh man, I'm going to have to deal with uh, five years of media posting things, a fatality inquiry. Everybody gets to question everything I did, but I don't get to say anything at all. Who's actually going to stand up for me and say I did the right thing? So that all kind of plays through your head in microseconds. So Yeah, I mean, such an important topic. Like for my first suicide by cop experience where someone tried to get me to kill them, uh, they pointed what was uh, an imitation firearm at me and I did not shoot them. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did have some information reports. Like they initially said they shot someone with a pellet gun. Uh, but this person, in my opinion, was attempting to die and attempting to get me to shoot them. Um, and that, that really impacted me. But I, I wasn't prepared for it. Like, yeah. Uh, and I don't think most officers are. So to go to some of the kind of science and stuff I've read about it, there's a book called Shots Fired. Actually, there's two books called Shots Fired, but the one by Chuck Ryland uh, has about 10 or 12 officers' stories. So one of those is a guy named Chad Robichaud. And Chad goes on to be like a Marine recon, special forces, uh, you know, super switched on guy. But they tell a story of his police shooting where they go to a domestic and a man points a gun at him and puts his finger on the trigger. And Chad in the book describes, if you'd told me about it this morning, I would have said blast him. That's his exact words. I think that's most cops. I think most cops are not truly prepared and are not truly, truly taught about the psychology of lethal force. 
and they don't understand the severity of the resistance that we as people and as police officers will have. And I understand it because I have felt it and I was Mm. really impacted by it. So Chad, instead of shooting this man, he goes and tries to get in a hand-to-hand fight with him. He grabs a gun and this guy's a hundred pounds bigger than him. He's losing the fight. Eventually he has to shoot this person. Mm. Um, But he explains how much harder it is to do that when you're looking at family pictures on the wall. Like it's just, it's not at all what we expect. And I don't think most cops get it. Now the science that explains it comes from two books from Lieutenant Colonel Grossman. Mm-hmm. So if anyone out there who's read these, On Killing and On Combat. I hadn't read those until after my first suicide by cop experience. So Lieutenant Colonel Grossman explains, this isn't just a human thing. This actually is in much of the animal kingdom that like animals will not, some of the most vicious animals out there will not kill their own species. Some will, but many won't. So and he references things like piranhas and rattlesnakes that they will, the piranha will bite anything except another piranha, that they turn around and fight with their tails, right? And that rattlesnakes do the same thing. And people are like that, that it, you know, some people can kill or can use lethal force and not have it impact them. And the situation really matters too, because there's a wide variety of situations. But most people will feel a resistance to using lethal force, whether it's in the military or whether it's in law enforcement. And I think the subtitle for on killing is the psychological cost of learning to kill in war and society. Mm. So Lieutenant Colonel Grossman goes through a bunch of history to show how few people actually would use lethal force. Even when you're being shot at or your life is on the line uh, and your teammates' lives are on the line, most people still would not overcome that. And he goes through records from the Battle of Gettysburg, how some of these guns were found with like 25 bullets in them. People would just sit there loading a gun but never shoot. Yeah. And most of the time was loading guns, not shooting, but because they have that resistance and they don't understand it. But then the military learned how to train people to actually use lethal force. Mm-hmm. So now that comes like Vietnam, where we did a much better job of training people who need to use lethal force, but we didn't prepare them or support them for the psychology after the fact. And I would say that's kind of like policing. We all think we're just going to rise to the occasion when put into these really challenging situations. And I think, you know, it's a Grossman quote again, but it's actually that you'll fall to your training. And it's why that training, that stress inoculation is so important because there are lots of situations where, you know, things go very wrong Mm -hmm. and they're not easy situations. Um, Also, I think within law enforcement, we need to do a better job of spreading awareness of the safety priorities, which is something I know you and I have talked a little bit about. So it used to be called the priorities of life, but it's just understanding that like when I started policing, we, were, we would be told um, the number one rule is you go home safe at the end of the day. And that's not true anymore because the top priority is actually hostages and civilians mm-hmm. and then police, right? And then the subject comes number four. So that explains why sometimes you might need to use lethal force to stop a threat, whether that threat is to you or someone else. Even though I would say there are people in the public who don't understand it, who think that we can de-escalate every situation and talk our way out of everything. And I'm telling you, we can't. Mm-hmm. Like, I've been to enough calls and people will even think like, oh, well, he just had his family in the house. And like, yeah, sometimes people kill their own families. Like, sometimes we get deployed to that and it's tragic and terrible, but we're there to try and save this family from that person. Um, but again, society, they don't know that because they don't really hear about that side. Well, I wonder too, uh, and I've never been able to find an answer for this, but at what point 
in history, in human history, was, uh, we'll say, the ability to either protect oneself or use this violence uh, in an offensive capacity um, kind of bred out of people. So where you're saying like back to Gettysburg, and I was actually, as you were talking about this, I was thinking of that exact example you were mentioning where they found rifles with like multiple rounds loaded in them. They were saying there's evidence like people were just lobbing shots over the heads of the, the enemy. And like this person's coming to kill you potentially, and you're still not using the lethal force. So at what point in human history was, um, you know, being the Spartans or whatever uh, to Gettysburg, like where in there did we lose that ability to uh, maybe use this uh, uh, violence um, or kill somebody? And uh, now it's, it's causing that mental health. I wonder, you know, way back in the, the BC times, uh, which we, I don't think we'd ever be able to find this out, but was there mental health back then? You know, and at what point did this become uh, a thing? So maybe you have the answer. You've read a lot more books on, on this than I have. Yeah. Well, my answer to that is basically how I said it's in many parts of the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. These extremely violent animals intentionally try not to kill each other. I think this goes free humanity in our evolution. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how far back that is. But at some point, we have common ancestors with piranhas and rattlesnakes and whatever else. And I think likely through evolution, it was an evolutionary advantage to have that resistance. So again, there are some species that will kill their own, totally. Yeah. But it is something that Grossman shows within the animal kingdom that I think is important. He also talks, like you mentioned, I think you said the Spartans or some of like kind of ancient history. Yeah. What we often saw, and Grossman explains this, what conflict or combat actually looked like. And again, I think most people don't actually understand interpersonal violence and conflict, but he describes it as posture, submit, flight, and fight. And what do we often do? We show up, say you arrest someone, high-risk situation, you show up, you take your gun out, you point at them, you're posturing, Mm -hmm. right? And then what do they often do? Typically, a lot of people will submit. Mm -hmm. They see the police, they see that the police mean business. And then they choose, okay, not today. I'm not going to mess with this cop. I'm gonna, I don't want to get injured or hurt or whatever it is. I'll give up. What's the next alternative? It's flight, right? Okay, you know what? I don't want to fight, but I'm going to flee. And then the last one is fight. Yeah. And I don't think many of us are really ready for the fight. And I'll say I've been there on arrest where, you know, it's someone who's arrestable for murder. They're not submitting and they're not fleeing. Like, you know, they're, they're there and they're, they're scoping out what the police are doing and they're coming out of the house and they're looking to fight their way out. Yeah. So we need to be ready to actually like, we often refer to that as kind of like a 1%. Um, and I don't mean it 1% in like the motorcycle club aspect, Mm -hmm. but just that, that small minority of the population who's like, they're not giving up. Yeah. And you have to force them to comply. And I think that's what, what you saw throughout a lot of the history of combat was, you know, they would use their yell or they would have a, a helmet that had a big, you know, feather at the top to make themselves look taller and more mm-hmm. intimidating. Like you would try and intimidate, you would try and posture. And that's often what you see in the animal kingdom too. It's, they do a loud roar or they have some display to show how big and strong they are to intimidate the other side into giving up. And I think it's important for us as cops to understand that. Like, yeah, the people who are going to give up, you could do it any way you needed to and they're going to give up anyways. Yeah. Like if you didn't do it well, it really didn't matter. 
the ones that matter are the ones who are more that are going to flee and then ultimately the ones who are going to fight. And I don't think society understands that there are people who point guns at the cops, who shoot at the cops, who kill cops, who kill cops with knives. Like, that's the reality of our job is it is super dangerous. And we talk a lot about how we've lost a lot of police lives in the past year, Mm -hmm. but often we forget all the ones who are injured. Like just even on in the summer, um, another five cops on Vancouver Island got shot at a bank robbery, like all on the earth team. So like we are dealing in a very violent, you know, the police are facing a lot of violence and we're doing an amazing job of resolving most of it using a minimal level of force and trying to de-escalate and trying to use less lethal tools. Um, but that's just not always possible. And I think much of society does not actually understand the realities of frontline police work. Yeah, and you know what? We have some naysayers here in Edmonton that uh, say this is not a dangerous job, um, but they f- I think they fail to take into account, just like you're saying, it, it's not just about the deaths, it's about the potential deaths. You know, five officers shot. You know, all it takes is a bullet to move a millimeter this way or that way, and that's the end for you. Um, there's a lot of officers who get into uh, fights, and it's you know the statistics or the I should say the story of what transpired. It could have been a lethal encounter. Nobody ended up dead at the end of it, but that doesn't get put out there. Um, just the number of people that get into get serious injuries. I know people on the job who've been a uh, in wrestling matches with people with edged weapons and they get some serious slashes or they get stabbed with it, but that doesn't get out there. So this isn't, you know, this isn't a job where, um, most of the injuries are going to come from necessarily things that are, you know, I just didn't follow step A, B and C. And now this piece of machinery, uh, you know, injures me. This is like, I'm relying on this person I'm dealing with to not go squirrely and try and do something to me because, you know, whatever their behavior is going to dictate a certain response from me. So, yeah, it, a lot of things are out of your control when you're doing this job. And I think that's the part that we don't convey uh, the the real message to the public about, especially when it comes to things like you see the outcomes in courts and uh, some of the decisions and the, the wording that has been used in uh, by judges and it's just like they, you can tell they don't really understand what's going on on the street. So um, I think that's missing. Yeah. Well, to touch on that, um, there was a case a little while ago where it was, I believe it was the Calgary police chief spoke out. So there was a male, I believe he was like a Sudanese refugee mm-hmm. and the police ultimately had to shoot him. Um, and there was a lot of, in my opinion, misinformation in the public and misstating what had happened. Uh, and disparaging the police. And then he spoke about it and just set the record straight of here's the reality of what we were doing and why. Yeah, And like what the public doesn't understand is ultimately we're trying to contain this situation to keep civilians and the public safe. Like we are decreasing our safety as police officers by going towards it. Yes. But now we need to do containment and create a safe bubble to stop anyone else from potentially being hurt or killed. Mm-hmm. Because that's what can happen in those situations. And then ultimately, we do have to find some way to resolve it. And we try to negotiate for hours. Like back to uh, the Starlight Casino hostage taking that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. where my friend was charged. Like they negotiated with that hostage taker for like five hours, maybe more. It was a long time. 
And they ran out and rescued the hostage and put themselves physically in danger to do it mm-hmm. without shooting him. They waited until that subject pointed a gun at them. And then they shot him once in the body. But because the public doesn't understand, and sometimes those investigating the police don't understand, and I would argue at times some of police management don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like I think, not all of them, I think there are some who understand very well and are very supportive and are very pro-member and about having good gear and good training and supporting their people through these things. But I've talked to other people in management who don't get it, like at all. You know, after, after Jordan's shooting, I, I heard of a member in management saying, well, we can't send him back to the emergency response team because it would send the wrong message because you've been in a shooting. And like, what this officer did is heroic. Like, yeah. he put himself in danger to rescue a hostage and he was forced to shoot someone who pointed a gun at him. Mm-hmm. That's what her teams are there for, like to rescue people, to keep the public safe and to then say, oh, well, like you did something wrong. Like, I think it shows a lack of understanding at times, even within the policing profession. And that's why, like, the safety priorities and some of this police psychology of lethal force, I think it should get taught to every police recruit before you ever leave training. Because I think you'll make better decisions if you understand it. I think you will not shoot someone that you should not shoot, like, because you'll understand how to do it. And you'll understand the subtle differences. Like, if, if there is an innocent civilian in between you and the hostage taker or the, the sub suspect with a weapon who's posing a danger, you have to compress and you will decrease your safety and that uh, subject's safety because you're increasing the safety of the innocent civilians. Yeah. Whereas if you recognize that difference and you have a lone subject, say in a resident, but no one else inside, okay, that's a totally different situation. We don't want to rush in and take away his time and space. Time and space is now our friend, mm-hmm. right? But if you don't recognize those two differences, you can make tactical mistakes that will lead to, you know, unnecessary death that could, may not necessarily just be the subject, right? Because there's so much focus on the number of police shootings. But I think we sometimes measure the wrong thing. What's the number of lives saved? Yeah. Like at that police shooting, okay, you have someone who already shot multiple people, right? They're on a murder they're an active attacker and you had to shoot them do we count that as an aggregate stat to show that we need more de-escalation or do we count that as a win for all the lives you saved of people that they were going to continue killing mm-hmm. i mean it's in the news right now about the, the recent tennessee shooting six lives were lost at that call those officers did an amazing job that's heroic and i think that gets lost that we're off, we often describe it as fearless. Oh, they were fearless when they went in. And I would say, no, I don't think they were fearless. And I say that from my own experiences. I've gone to countless high-risk calls, and there have been many times when I have felt fear. Like, yeah. oh man, this is yeah. very legit, and I am definitely worried about my safety, but I will go do this anyways, because this is what I would want for my family and my neighborhood and to keep people safe. Mm-hmm. So it's actually courage to overcome fear. But again, that should be part of the training when you, you do things like IR training is prepare them. Like you're going to show up and you are going to be scared. And then you're going to take a breath and you're going to push through that fear and you're going to show courage to confront this and, you know, save members of our community, which is our number one job is to keep the community safe. Well, I think that's a perfect way to explain what we do, right? Like that's exactly what you, uh, every recruit should have that speech. Um, maybe this kind of leads into talking a bit about police reform and some of the stuff um, 
about prepping members uh, um, for maybe some of the aspects of the job that aren't really told to them or they can't necessarily experience until they experience it uh, for the first time. So can you talk a little bit about uh, maybe what's missing in recruit training, what you you see as uh, maybe some key things that are missing from this, the psychological perspective? Okay. Um, so it's a little bit challenging because obviously different places will have different training, right? right? So you went through RCMP training. I went through the municipal side. Obviously, they're different lengths. You train on slightly different things. And then we both swap to different agencies. Um, so I kind of have to generalize a bit of what we get in training. And I can go based off my own training, yeah. which was in 2007. So some of that would have changed a little bit. Uh, the way I structured my book is actually by topics. Instead of just, I know most books, like you tell your story and at the end you share a few lessons. And what I did instead is I shared, I broke it down into the topics that I know I needed to learn more about. And the first one was mental health stigma. Cause like mm. I felt such a stigma. I wouldn't go see a psychologist. Even when I finally did, I wouldn't try the treatments they recommended cause it sounded weird to me, even though it wasn't. Mm. Um, it was EMDR, which is actually highly scientific and evidence-based. It's great. But to me, it just sounded weird. Uh, so we need to normalize that stuff. Um, then for me, my next chapter is lethal force psychology, which is just understanding a lot of what we just talked about and that I wasn't ready for that. And I think many officers are not even many who think they are, mm -hmm. they end up like Chad, the story I told where they think they're ready. They think it's no big deal. And they end up in that moment. And man, it's a very different moment. And we often think we'll do everything perfectly. And I'll tell you a whole bunch goes wrong. Yeah. There's times when I took my safety off to shoot someone and then I didn't shoot them, but I didn't put my safety back on for a while. Like, because I was overwhelmed. I, I was, mm. I was more, you know, such a high level of stress that I, you, you don't execute as well as you think you will. Uh, understanding police culture. So like you mentioned, I think, um, one of our coping strategies, like dark humor. And like, I saw a news article, some officers who got in trouble for a foreign, you know, essentially a form of dark humor as a coping strategy. And really, it's not an effective coping strategy. Mm -hmm. And arguably, it's not what we would want for our loved one. Like if our family member died, I wouldn't want to know that the first responder was joking about it. Um, and I don't judge people who use it because they're just trying to handle incredibly hard problems uh, without really being taught how. And I think instead, we should actually address it. Let's actually teach here are maladaptive coping strategies and here are healthy coping strategies. Here's a better way of resolving that emotional pain. Get a psychologist, do some journaling. Like there's a lot that you can do that you can try mm -hmm. that isn't just cracking jokes about the situation or the person. Uh, and I say it cause I've been there. Like I understand it, but I don't judge people who use that now because I understand the hardship of what they're facing. Cause I'm still a frontline cop. I still do the job. So I know kind of what that's like. Um, back to police culture too. I think it's important to teach a bit about like anti-police culture and what that is like yeah. that it's essentially used as like a political weapon against us. You know, we have members of parliament who talk about how we have tanks. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, do you guys have a tank at Edmonton police? How, how many millimeters is your cannon? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, some of the stuff is just, uh, outrageous that people say, you know, like, uh, it takes two seconds to, uh, debunk or, or prove wrong. But it's the fact you even have to do that sometimes is even just enough that like I don't I don't have time in the day to go and 
reply to you <laughs> and tell you all this stuff. Like, especially depending on the position you are, you should just know that. Like a lot of the stuff on um, gun debate and the uh, seizure of guns, uh, like the things that I see the federal minister saying, I'm just like, that is not true. Like this guy doesn't, like he must not own a gun because he's just saying things that make no sense. It's, it's political theater, essentially. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Is at times policing is politicized and used mm-hmm. as a political issue to gain support and vote to um, basically incite people or rally people against that. Mm-hmm. Uh, where well, we don't like the outcome. You know, someone died. That must mean the cop did a bad job. Actually, no. Almost always, I'd, I'd say at least usually, and almost always, it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't understand, and we don't. We can't. They're not able to separate outcome and process. You know, a good example would be the Micaiah Bryant case. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one down in the U.S. Mm-hmm. There was an officer who showed up to an act of stabbing happening and was forced to shoot a 16-year-old girl, which yeah. is terrible. That's tragic. No one wants to mm-hmm. see a dead 16-year-old girl, including the officer. But the officer didn't make that decision. Like, that that girl, unfortunately, was stabbing someone. And what would you want if it was you being stabbed? Mm-hmm. What would you want if it was your kid being stabbed? You would want an officer who unfortunately was forced to use lethal force to save the lives of an innocent civilian or hostage, whatever you want to call them. Um, and unfortunately, that's just the, the job we're in. That's the cost of safety, right? And yet, what happens after that? Well, LeBron James posts a tweet yeah. demanding hashtag accountability. And often accountability is a word that's used just for like charge cops. Yeah. Okay, but <laughs> we need to really understand what's happening here. Because going back to the case where you know Jordan McWilliams got charged, like, he did nothing wrong. What he did was heroic. And yet he got charged because we don't like that someone died at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. He didn't make that decision. He wasn't stalking anyone. He didn't take a gun. He didn't shoot his gun and he didn't point a gun at the cops. So how do we handle that? And yeah, anyways, I, I really think it's on us as the police, as the people in policing to educate the public. And I gave that example of the Calgary police chief who spoke publicly. Mm-hmm. We need to do a better job of proactively managing information. I would articulate that we're basically in a bit of an information war with some people within the public sphere who want to criticize the police, who want to post a five-second clip of use of force because it's never going to look pretty. Yeah. And say, see, this was terrible. And see, this is, you know, an evidence of the officer's racism. You know, that would be a good example would be the, the call in Fort McMurray. I think it was a couple of years ago. Uh, it was an RCMP call. And I believe there was a, a First Nations chief and there was some force in this against him. Yeah. And that has been cited a lot as an example of police racism. Mm-hmm. I've watched that video. I think the chief acted terribly mm-hmm. and I think the officer acted great. I don't think the officer did a thing wrong. You know, and I don't, I don't actually see that as a, as a sign of racism at all. Again, that's my opinion. But I think when we don't challenge those things in the public, uh, it's to our detriment. And it, again, shapes public opinion, which then shapes the policies and the laws and stuff around us. So you think back to the Braidwood Commission. From what I recall, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was the report after the Robert Dzikansky tasering mm, where he, okay. he died at the airport. And out of that, I believe they said that police recruits could, were not be allowed to carry tasers because that was too dangerous. But we give them guns. Mm-hmm. Like, what do we think is going to happen? <laughs> yeah. I will tell you, a gun is, what, 10,000 times more lethal? Like, yeah. I don't know how you quantify that, but, like, I know lots of people who've been 
I've had a CW deployed and I don't know any who have died from that result personally of calls I've been to, uh, and which is a lot. And whereas of people who have been shot with a firearm, the rate of people who pass away from that is quite high. Yes. So is that really a good plan? Or in my opinion, is that someone who's articulating uh, a plan to mitigate a problem, but creating a much bigger problem? And again, coming out of the, the Mass Casualty Commission in Nova Scotia recently, there is a call to disband depot and to go to a three-year degree program for law enforcement. Yeah, I'm an advocate of education. Like I have an undergrad and a master's degree. I think that's a terrible plan mm-hmm. because what's our biggest challenge right now? We have all kinds of vacancies. We cannot get enough people into the policing profession. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to make your training six times longer. We're probably going to make you pay for it all. And somehow that's going to get us more good applicants. Yeah. I don't think so. And I actually think we're going to lose a lot of the people who have life experience, people who have kids who aren't able to take that much time off work, people who come from the military or trades, and they just choose a different career because like, you can't have everything. So if we want to really invest in more police training, like often what comes out in the public is let's defund the police as if that's going to make anything better. It's mm-hmm. only going to make things worse. Um, but let's invest in the right kind of training. And to me, like, let's talk about you know, lethal force psychology. Let's talk about trauma. I know you and I talked briefly about trauma, but like prepare them that you will see traumatic scenes mm-hmm. and then prepare them with healthy coping strategies instead of the unhealthy ones that we're often bound or taught uh, within policing culture. I mean, let's talk about police suicide. Like, that's such a crucial topic. That is important lives that we can save. There's a ton of science and research around that. You know, you look at Dr. Carlton's research out of Sipsert and out of Regina there. Yeah. Um, they did a study where approximately 10% of RCMP members will have suicidal thoughts in a year and about a quarter in their lifetime. Okay, well, what are we doing about it? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, to me, and I think it's what both the literature calls for, so books like Police Suicide Epidemic in Blue by Dr. John Violanti and the survivors of police suicide, like the surviving family members. There's two books by spouses of members who died from suicide. One is uh, Don't Forget Your Roots by Sarah Routier. Another one is, I think it's called Finding My Fire by Sherry Lux. Um, And they both basically advocate, like, we need to be taught about these things. We need more support. Like, Sarah Routier says, we had all this support after my husband passed away but where was it before? Mm-hmm. Right. And why like Sylvain Routier is the officer who died. It was her husband. Um, he was a SWAT cop in Ontario. Well, he would have had thousands of hours of training between basic training and all the tactical training you get being on SWAT team. Well, how much of that training was on mental health? Like I would say virtually none. Yeah. And really if that's, what's killing most of our officers, maybe we're investing or we're not investing enough in the right things. And maybe we can actually change those outcomes well maybe that's also like the uh the idea of like the first time you get punched in the face you don't want that to be uh your you know the first time you ever punched in the face in life you don't want that to be when it's in the middle of a fight for your life uh but that is what a lot of people looks where they experience it um maybe the mental health side of things you don't want it to be when you're up to your eyeballs dealing with things and that's when you're finally told oh, there's this thing called mental health. And here's some things that uh, you should try to do to help yourself. Like maybe you could have prevented a lot of it. Maybe you could have dealt with some of it earlier and you wouldn't be so deep in it. Kind of going back 
too, um, just talking about educating the public. Yeah, there's one thing that I've, I've mentioned on the, sh- the show with various guests is like, how do you kind of balance that due process with uh, educating the public? So a shooting happens I, and I, I get there's got to be that. You can't just go out and say, here's all the facts and everything that happened because some of it isn't known. You want to give out uh, cer- uh, concrete detail and not guesses and not assumptions. Um, so you have to have that due process and the respect for it. But then there also can be that education component. So it's like, where do you find the balance of like when to put out certain things? I think we're seeing that a lot more in the U.S. Maybe there'd be a debate on whether they're doing a, a good job of this or not because now it's like body cam video from them is released like right away. Something happens, just play the video. So at least that's out there. It's like, well... Maybe that'll be good. Maybe it won't. We'll see in the future where that kind of leads. Um, but uh, so that's kind of my comment on that, but also uh, the college thing. And I'll kind of leave this as maybe the last topic. And I want to make sure we got time to uh, say where people can find you and your work. But the college, that is a huge uh, thing right now. We see it all over social media. Um, and I've asked a few guests for their take on this, but maybe I'll kind of give you mine and if you want to reply, uh, one of the things I was thinking about when I was kind of thinking like, how would this work if you did a two or three year degree was, um, you know, you can always, uh, get the, the experience and training. It'd be like on the job training, but every single call you go to, you are dealing with people, you're talking to people. So you are deescalating, negotiating, it could be something really big, like a hostage negotiation, or it could be something super small, like, hey, I just can't have you here. You can go right over there, like five feet over, and nobody will call and nobody will have a complaint. <laughs> so you're doing all kinds of things uh, uh, dealing with people. And I find that's every single call. And that's also in your personal life with your family, your kids. You are practicing this, you're using this every single day, seeing what works. So even if we had a two or three year uh, program, I think it would still lead to more training in the hard skills, shooting, driving, um, you know, uh, use of force, different things. Maybe people would expect us to come out and be like Steven Seagal all of a sudden, which they already do. And you only get a couple weeks of uh, defensive tactics, but um I think it would still be more of the hard skills being learned because you can't readily go practice that that every day whenever you want. If I want to go do practice driving a police car with all the lights going and a siren and trying to listen to a radio while also uh, maybe your partner's talking to you and trying to navigate, it's like driving a rally car down the street when you see those guys on those dirt roads and they're just barely making turns and stuff. Try driving in the winter <laughs> on all season tires with a super heavy vehicle. Like it's, it's insane sometimes. And I think you would just need more of that type of training because you can't just go practice that anywhere. But I can keep talking to people every day. So kind of what are your thoughts around that? Well, it's an important topic because really what I think you're asking me is like, is what police culture is. 
how do the senior people pass on the knowledge to the new people of how to best deal with the internal and external problems? And that's like, that's what our training is. I don't know if you've taught any recruits, mm-hmm. but I've had recruits where they come out of training and you go to do your first call and it's like, I don't understand some of what they taught you guys. Like there's differences in the reality of what, what we do in a frontline capacity and what, how things are done in training. Yeah. You know, they don't know how to take notes. They don't know how to talk to someone. They don't know how to do a search. Like uh, all they've ever searched people in a police uniform in their use of force training. They haven't searched them with three coats, four hoodies and like 12 belts <laughs> yeah. or whatever. They, you, yeah. know, you, know what I mean, you know what I mean? Because people get creative on how and where they hide things. So, you know, our training, the closer it can be in line with the realities of our job, the better we will do the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, as you were talking, you mentioned a bit of like, you know, having someone you just need to be over here and then you won't be causing a problem kind of thing. Yeah. I actually really like um, Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yeah. And to me, the way I think of those situations is always like, how do I get you and me on the same team for the best outcome? So like, mm-hmm. how do, not just how do I get you to do what I want, how do I get you to want to do what I want you to do? And often you show up to the domestic. Okay, it's a no charge domestic. There's no evidence of a crime, but you both can't stay in the house. We don't want another fight. We need to, yeah. get to be safe, blah, blah, blah. So like, what do we do? And often that's where I try and work with someone like, hey, I really don't want to have to take anyone to jail tonight. Like, let's work together and find a solution that works for everyone. Where can I take you? Because I, I really want to make sure yeah. that we find somewhere good for you to go. And then, you know, I don't have anywhere. Okay, well, how about a hotel? Do you, have, do you have money for a hotel? And you just start trying to find solutions and collaboratively build together uh, and explain kind of like the parameters of what you need. But often you can get that while still treating someone with respect. Like just because there's a police call for service doesn't mean I need to be a dick to you. Yeah. I can still treat you in a reasonable manner. Like, you know, I would say most of our friends, our families, our members of the community have all been pulled over at some point by the police. How do we want them to be treated? Yeah. Do you want them to be yelled at and berated and told they're an idiot? Or do you think that they should just be like treated with respect? Like what you would want. I've been pulled over, right? Mm-hmm. We all have. So I think when we're on the other side of that interaction, we should just be mindful to treat people that same way that we can still treat them with a level of respect. And really policing is largely around people skills. Yeah. hundred percent. Like I think there's an element of like common sense and safety, Yeah, but I have talked my way out of so many confrontations. I don't want to fight anybody. I've been punched in the face more times in my life than I ever want, nor do I want to break my hand on someone else. So I talk my way out of the vast majority of situations because you can deescalate when you, when you can, when it's appropriate, but you need to be able to recognize that difference. And maybe we like, if you need like a whole entire media department to do this kind of stuff, but it's like uh, maybe when we put out our statistics of use of force and um, uh, shootings or whatever else we might be involved in in a year, uh, put out, okay, we drove, you know, 630,000 people uh, away from a dangerous situation or a domestic in the year. So we solved 630,000 assault calls without any use of force. Maybe we move people along and prevented trespassing, which a lot of times trespassing can turn into just further issues. Um, like, do we need, you know, do people need that level of 
detail in the statistics that are being passed to him. Maybe because we see it, it kind of on one side where only the negative stats are brought up and kind of used against us. It's like, okay, well then let's just start putting out these massive numbers of the things we do that don't involve, involve use of force, don't involve uh, hurting anybody. You see with like complaints, uh, nowadays it's almost, you can just walk in and throw down any kind of complaint against a police officer and it's got to be investigated. But it's like, how many, how many interactions do we have that don't result in a complaint? Right. So we go and deal with people in all kinds of situations and we manage to settle these with, uh, without uh, complaints or further on use of force. So maybe we just need to get better at telling our story. Yeah. I think partly we need to get better at collecting some of the stats. So, in yes. my opinion, like, I don't know how it works for you guys. We're on Prime here in BC. Mm-hmm. We have different mandatory fields around whether. Uh, SQR was created, so whether force was used, whether yep. it was a mental health related call. But we should have mandatory fields for suicide by cop. Mm. Person exhibited suicide by cop. Because then at the end of the year, we can say, yeah, we attended uh, 10,000 or 50,000 suicide by cop. Like, hey, really? And you only shot 30 people or 60 people or whatever the number is? Like, wow, you de escalated 99% of people who were yelling at you to shoot them and advancing towards you. Yeah. I'd say that's actually something to, we should be really proud of that yes. we're able to do that. And I say that because I've been through numerous and I know I've had people come out of a house with a gun in their mouth. I've had people pull a gun in front of me, point a gun. Like, so yeah. I've seen some of where that goes that much of society doesn't understand. I think we should also track like number of times we were shot at, mm-hmm. whether the subject had a weapon so that we can also frame it that, yeah, we arrested, you know, 500 people for murder. We arrested 500 people with guns. We dealt with however many thousands or whatever number of suicide by cop. We dealt with this many hostage takings. And then there's the other side. Like, for example, say that the Tennessee active shooter call that we referenced earlier, where six people died. I think we should actually track the number of lives lost because of the suspect. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, the suspect is the one in control. They have the gun. They could drop the gun in any moment and give up. Mm-hmm. And we would safely arrest Okay, but they often keep shooting and we are forced to do that. So if now all of a sudden we say, well, you know, a hundred people died because the suspect killed them and then we're forced, forced the police into a confrontation. Well, that's a whole different statistic than the way it often gets framed. And there's one article, the same person every year. I don't know her name. Uh, I forget her name, but one of them, I think says police still shoot too many experts says Mm -hmm. that was 2021, maybe 2022. Uh, and every year they basically write the same article and they quote the stats and they tell a story and then they say, you know, here's why this story is sad and here's why this is bad and here's the stats that show the police are doing a bad job. And when I read it, it actually makes me angry because, you know, having been in this type of role for a long time, I obviously am, attend a bunch of these calls and I know the impacts where the subjects kill people and then are, are forced, forced the police to use lethal force and the subject dies. And then... We use that as an aggregate statistic of a bad job of policing. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think it's true at all. And I think it gets misrepresented that way. And then it gets reframed within the public and leads to officers getting charged who shouldn't, uh, which again is a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. But back a little bit to what you said about the education side. So one way of trying to increase education in policing is to say, okay, everyone needs a three-year degree. And I think has a secondary impact of recruiting, of reducing 
our recruiting numbers and making arguably our biggest problem worse, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, but what if there's other ways? And I'll give you an example, but I have friends who are teachers. Okay, if you go get a teaching master's degree, you make like $5,000 extra a year. What if we did something like that? What if we took the same money we're going to invest and we find another way? What if we make it so that if you're a cop and you want to do post-secondary, we'll pay for it. Yeah. We'll pay for half of it, right? I mean, when I was with Delta, they pay 10 grand for a constable and it works its way up if you're at a higher rank. Yeah. With the RCMP, we have a program. It's, it is lower. Um, but like personally, I paid for my whole master's. I paid $30,000. So what if we want to incentivize people, then maybe that's another way we could do it. Maybe we could do it in our promotional process. Mm-hmm. Maybe like, I, I don't know what your promotional process is like in Edmonton. I went through one in Delta and I've written the JSE and the RCMP, which is the promotional exam. And it had nothing to do with post-secondary education. It had, you know, I would argue that they could actually include parts from like leadership books and really leadership theories yeah. and ethics and other aspects because to me, and I'm just a constable in the RCMP, uh, it does not feel like a super relevant test. Now, there probably is some science behind it and there's aspects I don't understand, but I'm saying maybe we can change a little bit of other parts of the system mm-hmm. because there is still good of post-secondary. If, if every cop had an undergrad degree or a master's degree, like that's extra education and there's a benefit to that. But maybe that's just a different model in a different way that doesn't make our problem worse and that we just invest in a different way. Yeah, And maybe it's other aspects because there's different types of, of learning and intelligence. Like maybe every cop gets better use of force training. Maybe everyone does the Gracie survival tactics, you know, jujitsu, and you learn better how to control people. Yeah. So you don't need to use as much force. I'd say that would probably be a good thing. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different ways, but I think when we lock in on one solution and when they, I would argue, probably have a political aspect to them, I think we're likely to go down the wrong road. And in my opinion, that, that's probably a bit of what's happened. And kind of bring it all back, I started writing my book just wanting to teach the things I needed to learn. And, and I felt like they weren't really well out there. And I didn't learn them to teach them to anyone. I learned them because I needed them for me, mm. right? I was struggling with these problems. And in some ways, I still struggle with these problems, right? I mentioned it, but I wrote a chapter on emotional pain and then still ended up crying after a call because I'm still human. Yeah. And that's okay. And I don't actually see that as weakness. I'm human. That's a, it's positive that I still have empathy. It's positive that I can still come home and tell my kids I love them. Because I think for some of us, our answer to that emotional pain is to turn off emotions, which I think negatively impacts us at home, but also negatively impacts us on the job. Yeah. So I do think these kind of discussions are huge. What you're doing with the podcast is huge because you're helping to educate the next generation of cops and to teach them informally stuff that they can learn to better themselves, to be better cops, to be better people. And I think many of us have a very similar vision of like a better future. Mm-hmm. And we're each just kind of trying to work towards it in our own way. So, you know, I thank you for having me on to, to give me the chance to share a little bit of what I've been learning because really, I never did this because I wanted to write a book. I did this because I was upset that no one taught me this and I just wanted to share it. Yeah, Like I'd put it on my website for free if I thought people would actually read it and respect it. But somehow having a book gives it a little more authority and makes it more yeah. real. Um, but that's like, to me, it's really just about trying to help people. Cause like we talked about earlier about why people get into policing. That's really what I wanted from the beginning is just to help pass on lessons to a next generation. Because like 
back to, you know, the police are the public, the public are the police. Mm-hmm. I'm here at home on a day off. Someone else is doing policing to keep me safe and keep our community safe, you know, just like for you on your day off. Yeah. So I want to help do what we can and just like you to, to help them do that job even better and, and, you know, be healthy, successful people. Well, I think there's a lot of people uh, such as yourself, but also uh, Dr. Carlton that you mentioned. Uh, he's been on the podcast. Uh, he was an amazing guest too. And um, he even mentioned uh, Jody Carrington. So I got—I don't have enough time in the day to get to all these people that get mentioned, but I, I try to get them on the show if I can. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of you out there that are kind of uh, doing some of this tough work uh, in kind of new ventures. And I mean, that's even part of the purpose of this podcast. Um, it's the reason I don't put my picture in a lot of different places. It's just a logo. It's not about me or for me. It's about speaking for the front line and asking some of the questions that uh, they don't get to ask. The people that I have on here, you get access to certain people just through word of mouth or who you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a small piece, but we're trying to move things in the right direction. So um, coming up to the end of our time here, I. Uh, I just want to make sure you get a chance to say how people can follow you and your work uh, and talk a little bit about um, where they can find the book. Yeah, thanks. So the book, it's called Setting My Sights on Stigma. Uh, you'll be able to find it on Amazon. Uh, I know there's usually a time lag with podcasts. So we're recording this in April. The book is set to come out in May. Uh, it's self-published, so I don't have an exact date. I'm still just putting a few final tips or final edits with my editor. Um, but we've done several rounds now and uh, it's getting pretty close. So I'm, I'm super nervous, and super excited because <laughs> I think it's going to help a lot of people. I sure hope so. Uh, I have a website, which is just my name, uh, markbouchard.ca. It's Mark with a K. I put some book summaries of some of the books I've mentioned where people can just go read a little five minute summary, 10 minute summary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may not have time to read a whole book, but like you can just get a little gist of it and hopefully you'll like it and want to read it because they're books I needed and I think many officers would need. I have some journal articles on there too. So things like Dr. Carlton's research, uh, you can go and read a little summary and then you can click on a link that takes you to some of the articles because sometimes reading academic literature is a little intimidating and a little hard to read depending on, you know, your own education level and comfort level. It's a bit of a different way of writing and reading. Yeah. Uh, so I try and just <laughs> almost translate academic speak into normal speak. Got a few blogs on there as well. I've, haven't put too many out lately just because I've been busy with the book. Um, But I'll I'll get back to that at some point once I get through the book. Uh, I am on some social medias, but I don't really post a lot. But you can find me on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, or Facebook, just Mark Bouchard or Mark Bouchard 5.2, depending which which one. And I interact a little bit, but but not a ton. But the best way to find me typically is going to be on my website, markbouchard.ca. And yeah, the book should be out in uh, in May. So, you know, if you you read it and you like it or you want to let me know what you think. I'd love to hear from people. There's a contact link on my uh, on my website. You can click on and send me an email, and it'd mean a lot to me to hear from people. I've I put in a I'm in my fourth year of writing this thing now. I've, I've certainly oh, wow. put a lot into it because it's it's my passion. You know, it's what I know I needed and what I've seen in others who really have struggled with similar problems. And uh, it's my way of trying to give back and, and try and help the next generation. Awesome, that's good stuff. This uh, I generally have like a maybe about a four or five week um, timeline of where I put episodes out. So yours probably be out around end of May, maybe first couple weeks of June. So it'll be right around the time the book comes out if you're toward the end of the month. Um, but yeah, no, I want to say 
thanks for coming on. Um, I'll say by offline, so just hang on on the line. But yeah, thank you for coming on today and sharing your experience and um, giving us some tools that hopefully help somebody out there on the street. Awesome. It was a real honor. So thanks a lot for having me on, Nathan.